Welcome to the FG podcast, based on the paper, Serum Ammonia Use, Unnecessary, Frequent and Costly, published online in Frontline Gastroenterology in 2021. My name is Oliver Taverby, and I am a trainee associate editor at Frontline Gastroenterology, as well as a hepatology registrar at the Royal London Hospital. I am delighted to welcome all of the authors who are based at the University of Minnesota. Dr. Elizabeth Abbey, who is a fellow in gastroenterology and hepatology, Dr. Andrew Olson, who is an associate professor and internist, and Dr. Nicholas Lim, who is an associate professor and transplant hepatologist. Firstly, congratulations on the paper, which has already stimulated great discussion on social media, and thanks for joining me for this podcast. I think we should start by discussing the use and misuse of serum ammonia as a diagnostic test. When is it appropriate for a serum ammonia to be requested? So first of all, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us about our manuscript. Ammonia is important in the complex pathophysiology of hepatic encephalopathy. While physicians have been using serum ammonia to diagnose and assess the severity of hepatic encephalopathy in individuals with cirrhosis, the literature does not necessarily support the use of serum ammonia in these settings. And serum ammonia is appropriate when used in the management of acute liver failure and in urea cycle disorders. Hyperammonemia on its own has been demonstrated to be sufficient as a cause of brain edema in individuals with genetic disorders of urea cycle enzymes who do not have other alterations in liver function. And those with acute liver failure, elevated serum ammonia levels are directly associated with brain edema and cerebral herniation due to astrocyte swelling. Other causes of elevated ammonia in those without cirrhosis would include medications or drugs, such as valproic acid. Thank you for that, for that great overview. What clinical situations is it therefore not appropriate to request a serum ammonia? One of the most uh, common uses of, of the ammonia test in everyday practice, at least in the US, and hence the focus of our study, uh, is to look for hepatic encephalopathy in patients with cirrhosis. So um, serum ammonia, uh, as I'm sure you know, is notoriously unreliable for this purpose. You know, it's something that we, we learn when you go to university. Uh, and there's a lot of, uh, there's a plethora of like clinical data sort of backing this up as well. But in spite of all that, it's a test that still gets checked in a large proportion of patients with cirrhosis. And that in itself contributes a lot of waste in the medical system and probably contributes a lot of potential harm as well. So, and then all of this is in the context of a, a US healthcare system where costs are continuing to rise exponentially each year. So, um, interestingly, you know, a lot of the providers and in the US, that's a catch all term for doctors, nurse practitioners, and physician assistants. A lot of providers know this but they still continue to order the test. So, you know, for example, you know, when I'm on call, you know, I may get paged about one of my patients who's been admitted to another hospital with hepatic encephalopathy, and then whoever's paging me, they'll often start by saying, look, I know I shouldn't have checked this test, but I did anyway. And um, I've got one of your patients here with, you know, hepatic encephalopathy, and they've got a really high ammonia. What should I do? So uh, I think that's the main sort of uh, inappropriate sort of uh, time to, to, where people are using serum ammonia. I think we'll also see uh, uh, this test being used to evaluate patients with confusion, you know, basically as a diagnostic thing. And, and, and it's, this is really being you, uh, where the test is being used to screen for cirrhosis. But kind of like what we were seeing earlier, 
the same limitations of the test apply. And again, it's, you know, it's not really useful. I think that's a really important question. As we've identified in this work, the number of clinical situations in which a pneumonia is indicated uh, is actually relatively narrow. Um, and it's really not indicated in evaluation of patients with known cirrhosis. Um, and as we know, that's a really common patient situation to come into the emergency department uh, and the patient with cirrhosis is confused. You think they may have hepatic encephalopathy that's whether that's spurred by infection or bleeding or another cause, medication not adherence, whatever it be. Very often, uh, the patient will have a serum ammonia obtained, which really doesn't add any clinical substance uh, to, to your decision-making. And so uh, in, in the care of patients with cirrhosis, uh, an evaluation of whether or not they have hepatic encephalopathy uh, or another cause for their alteration of mental status, or maybe they're just failing to thrive. Really, none of those situations uh, are a situation in which uh, obtaining a serum ammonia uh, really helps or influences your decision making. Thank you. That's a very clear answer. With that in mind, how did you set out to investigate clinicians' inappropriate use of serum ammonia as a diagnostic test? So that's a great question. Given the healthcare costs in the U.S. are increasing greatly, we sought to better understand the landscape of appropriate and inappropriate serum ammonia ordering within our Midwestern healthcare system. Specifically, we aim to quantify ordering cost, and appropriate use. So given that, we conducted a retrospective review of adults who had a serum ammonia test ordered in our healthcare system over five years, so spanning from January 1st of 2015 to December 31st of 2019. Our Midwestern healthcare system includes over eight hospitals, including a large tertiary medical referral system. Serum ammonia ordering was considered appropriate for our study when used in the management of acute liver failure or urea cycle disorders. The use of serum ammonia otherwise was deemed inappropriate. Of note, given that ICD-9 and 10 codes, so the codes that we use for billing for acute liver failure and urea cycle disorders are fraught with errors, all of these diagnoses were confirmed by manual chart review. So what were your key findings? So... We found that over the five-year study period, that over 20,000 serum ammonia tests were ordered on approximately 8,500 patients. The median age of our cohort was about 63 years old, and about half of the patients in our cohort were male. The majority of our patients in this Midwestern hospital system were non-Hispanic white, which is very characteristic of the demographics in our state. Medicare was the most common insurance coverage at about 52%, followed by private insurance at about one-third of patients. Of approximately the 20,000 tests that were ordered, only 6.5% of those tests were considered appropriate for testing. And over half of the individuals who had a ceremonia test had chronic liver disease. So we then looked at the proportion of inappropriate testing over time. The proportion of inappropriate tests compared to the total number of serum ammonia tests ordered increased over the five-year study period. But then when we looked at the rate of inappropriate serum ammonia ordering in the patients with chronic liver disease, we saw no change over time. We also looked at serum ammonia ordering at the academic medical center compared to the community hospitals in our health system. We found that a greater proportion of serum ammonia tests were ordered for appropriate indications at our academic medical center compared to the community hospitals. So given that serum ammonia testing costs approximately $18 for Medicare patients, according to the 2018 fee schedule, 
a minimum of $342,000 was spent on inappropriate serum ammonia testing in our health system over the study period, so five years. Although we expect that the number to be much higher as the cost of certain things can vary in the U.S. based on insurance. So, for example, if a patient has a certain type of insurance, the cost of a serum ammonia test can be closer to $100 per test. Wow, that's quite staggering in pricing. And that brings us on to our next point. Given the differences between North American and UK healthcare provision, could you give us some insight into how insurance providers would view serum ammonia testing and the impact of this on their patients? Yeah, so that's a very good question, uh, Ollie. Uh, so yeah, earlier we mentioned, you know, waste in the medical, you know, waste of medical resources, you know, and I, I define that as the, the use of a test with no clinical value in the context of serum ammonia, which you might think would be something that's really important or close to the heart of like a healthcare insurance company. You know, why would an insurance company pay for a test that has no clinical value when they're, they're really protective of their bottom lines? But for some reason, we don't seem to see that, you know. So uh, I guess to, to take an example, you know, like um, I might have an insurance company trying to block me from ordering a liver MRI in one of my patients with cirrhosis, but we don't seem to see the same barriers when it comes to people ordering like serum ammonia tests. One of the reasons for this uh, might be due to the fact that you know, serum ammonias are ordered in real time, you know, like IE is being ordered in the inpatient setting on a day-to-day basis, probably, you know, almost, uh, and therefore it can't be scrutinized quickly enough by an insurance company. But one of the other reasons that this might be is because, you know, a serum single ammonia test, you know, in and of itself isn't that expensive. So it isn't something that's really at the forefront of the minds of a health insurance company, you know, especially when you're comparing it to sort of big ticket items like MRIs or procedures or, or things like, uh, you know, like um, certain medications, like certain types of chemotherapy or, or biologic therapy. But, you know, one of the reasons that we, actually wanted to look at the cost of ceremonia testing, at least in our system, was really to draw attention to this fact because you take the amount of money that's been spent, and this is at a minimum in our study for our healthcare system, but if you were to extrapolate that across the United States, that's going to be a lot of money spent on a test that's basically useless in patients who've got cirrhosis. That's really interesting. And on the basis of your results, have you looked to implement local changes in practice? And if so, can you give an overview of what you've done to this point? Yep, uh, absolutely. So um, when we're in the planning stages of this study, uh, we'd actually, we'd informally ask our healthcare IT team about the feasibility of, you know, making uh, alterations to uh, our electronic health record with regards to the ability to order serum ammonia. So the answer we got from the hospital administration was basically, uh, we're not going to do anything like that until you can prove that there is actually unnecessary use of the test. Um, Once you prove that, and and once you get buy-in from all the stakeholders involved, you know, people in critical care, people in, you know, the emergency room, hospital medicine doctors, other GI doctors, then we can talk about actually doing something about it. So... Basically, getting our study published and getting the word out on this topic is the first step in the process of trying to implement change in our system with regards to this problem. And we discuss potential solutions in our paper, but a restrictive strategy has been shown in other areas of gastroenterology to be successful. 
So for instance, eliminating inpatient fecal occult blood testing has shown to be successfully to reduce the number of unnecessary endoscopies. There was a study performed at a large urban teaching hospital in Dallas, Texas that proved this point. We also have shown in the gastroenterology literature that decision support tools um, can reduce overtesting. So in a prospective study out of Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston, Massachusetts, a decision support tool was created to inform users of the indications for ceruloplasm testing. This was a simple pop-up notification in the electronic medical record system containing an age-based society recommendation and the predictive values of the test. The implementation of that decision support tool resulted in a significant reduction of low-value ordering of ceruloplasmin, specifically in patients over the age of 55. The drawback from this type of approach is that if we apply it too often in the electronic medical system, then providers can potentially get click fatigue, not pay attention, and just fill in boxes based on sort of just trying to get through them. So this was actually noted in a study from UCSF, which attached prices to tests in the electronic medical system for residents in an effort to discourage low-value testing and encourage high-value diagnostic testing. After initial impact, ordering prices reverted back to baseline. The thought was being that residents either got desensitized to the prompts or they either just sorted to ignore them as time went on. That's that's really interesting. It does lead on to the next question and you've covered a bit of it with this is what are your views on restricting access to testing in comparison to educating clinicians responsible for inappropriate test ordering so that they use the test more appropriately yeah for this i think we should step outside medicine for a second and think about going to the atm Uh, so you go to withdraw some cash from the atm and if everybody uh, who had an ATM card many years ago remembers uh, there was an epidemic of lost ATM cards because you would put your card in, take your money, and then leave your card. Uh, well, they fixed that. Uh, they first tried to say, well, put signs on the thing to, to educate people to take your card. Like, you need to take your card. Well, we still left the card in there because we got our money and we were happy and we left. Uh, and then they learned that now really the way to get people not to leave their ATM card in the ATM is that you have to take the card out before you can get your cash. Uh, And so certainly education plays a significant role, and I don't mean to denigrate the role of education, but what we really need to do, in my view, is have forcing functions. And so if something's just simply not clinically indicated, we cannot allow it to be ordered. And and this is one of the the wonderful things about the electronic health record that um, all of us like to rip on the EHR, but I think we have substantial uh, opportunity to say, if you have a patient and the EHR knows you're evaluating them for cirrhosis, you know they have cirrhosis, you can really not allow it to order a serum ammonia. Uh, And so I think that, well, education does play a role and we need to educate people why we're doing forcing functions. The more we can force people to do the right thing and make the default thing, the easy thing, to do the right thing to do, um, I think will be better. Yeah, so I, I guess that's kind of a, a philosophical question, isn't it? You know, is it going to be the stick or the carrot? And that kind of applies to a lot of things in general. So I, I think the first thing that I'd say is that, you know, this has been a longstanding problem, you know, for, for many, many years. And, uh, you know, like, and I think our studies actually shown that, that there really wasn't a change in, the proportion of tests that are being ordered for uh, inappropriate reasons over the, over the five-year period in our study. 
And that's in spite of, you know, things, you know, multiple initiatives to try and really improve the situation, you know, updating of practice guidelines, you know, like the American Association for Study Liver Diseases uh, published uh, their guidelines, I think 2014, about how to diagnose and manage hepatic cephalopathy. Uh, that's in spite of initiatives such as uh, the American College of Physicians uh, Choosing Wisely initiative. Uh, and I think they did something similar in Canada. So in spite of these efforts, you know, we still have the problem where ammonias are getting checked in patients who've got cirrhosis. So I, I think, again, this is a chronic problem. And I think, unfortunately, education and other initiatives hasn't really worked. So I think the question then is, well, do we therefore need to maybe adopt maybe a more draconian approach in terms of tackling this particular problem? You know, so again, you know, like Lizzie was saying, you know, is it maybe better just to restrict the ordering of this? Uh, and, you know, is that going to make, you know, uh, more inroads into the problem? It seems to definitely have worked in, in Dallas and, and in Boston. So you know, is it something we should try and introduce at, you know, at Minnesota? I, I think, you know, there, there's going to be some problems with that. I think, you know, the question is, how do you implement it? I think it'd be fair, that would be fairly straightforward in the sense that you'd be, you know, we, we use an electronic health record. That would be very straightforward. But I think the other question is, well, how would the other providers take that? You know, I think as doctors and, and providers in general, we, we like to think that we're practicing good medicine with good clinical judgment. But I, I, I know at least, at least from my point of view, I don't like people telling me what to do and what I can do and what I can't do when it comes to taking care of my patients. So even though I think a restrictive strategy is probably the way to go, you know, for example, limiting the ordering of ammonia to places like maybe the emergency room or the ICU, where we're either trying to diagnose or manage uh, patients with acute liver failure. Um, it, it would be a, I think it's still, there's going to be other obstacles there, you know, in terms of trying to get people to play along. Thank you for that really insightful answer. And thank you all for doing this podcast today, which has provided food for thought around appropriate use of investigations and congratulations once again on the paper. Do let us know what you think about the issues discussed here today and you can subscribe to Frontline Gastroenterology on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher and Spotify to keep up to date with our latest content. <laughs>